This is Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Reitan Ribeiro, who is in the Department of Surgical Oncology at Erastos Gartner Hospital in Curitiba, Brazil. Reitan, it is certainly a pleasure speaking with you about this really very innovative surgery, uterine transposition. And would you please explain to our audience the difference between uterine transposition and uterine transplantation? And also, how did you get this idea? Well, uh, hi, Pedro. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about the uterine transposition. Well, the uterine transposition basically is the mobilization of the uterus with ovaries and tubes to the upper abdomen prior to radiation therapy for pelvic cancers. Uh, we basically separate the uterus and cervix from the vagina. We have to ligate and section the uterine uh, vessels so we can mobilize the uterus uh, to the upper abdomen. After the radiotherapy, the uterus and annexes are replaced to their natural position. Well, it's, it's not a transplant. It, it's more like a flap. The uterus and annexes keep their vascularization through the gonadal vessels. In a transplant, the uterus is from a donor, so it's placed in the patient using uh, vascular anastomosis. Well, the idea, the idea of the uterine transposition happened uh, six or seven years ago. I had this young patient with rectal cancer and clear indication of new adjuvant chemoradiation. Um, but even after proper orientation about uh, in vitro fertilization and other options, uh, she refused the radiation due to the infertility. She was engaged, concerned about her marriage and losing the possibility to have a regular pregnancy. So she didn't accept the radiotherapy. So we booked her for surgery. And in the meanwhile, I spent lots of time looking for some uh, reliable fertility sparing option for her, uh, other than traditional ones, because they, she didn't accept them. So uh, at that time, I was also thinking how to preserve her fertility using surgery. So after how kind of uh, crazy ideas, I had this, let's say, strange idea of the uterine transposition. At that time, we had a good experience with the ovarian, ovarian transposition and some experience with radical trachelectomy. So it just looked obvious to me the idea of taking the uterus along the ovaries and tubes to the upper abdomen. So it sounded so obvious uh, at that time that I spent a couple more days looking for who was already doing it because I didn't believe it. I was the first one to think about it, so, you know. But when the patient came to me before the surgery uh, to review exams and etc., I didn't have the courage to propose her the uterine transposition. Uh, she did the surgery and uh, did adjuvant chemotherapy but did not have radiotherapy. For several reasons, I, I end up leaving aside the idea for a period. So three years after that, a very similar patient came to me. And again, she, this other patient refusing uh, radiation. She was the first case. Now, Rayton, uh, would you tell us about the patient in whom you performed this procedure? Uh, I'm sure, obviously, it was quite an undertaking. And I'd like to hear specifically on, on a couple of points. One, the indication for, for the procedure and how you discussed that with her. Um, the discussion prior to surgery as it pertained to ovarian cryopreservation and, and transplantation. 
uh, imaging and laboratory evaluations uh, speak on the on the potential risk of ovarian metastases in, in a patient with colorectal cancer. And then just also interested in, in the principle of genetic testing for, for Lynch syndrome in somebody like this. Well, we are indicating the procedure inside the feasibility trial for patients with uh, non-gynecologic pelvic cancers who need radiation as part of the treatment and obviously wants to preserve fertility. Mainly they are rectal cancer patients, but also anal cancer and uh, pelvic sarcomas. As fertility option, we always offer the standard of care, which is uh, oocyte vitrification, frozen embryos, along ovarian transposition. In Brazil, it's very hard to have ovarian cryopreservation. It's still not a regular procedure in Brazil. Uh, we do not offer ovarian transplantation for those patients. We usually offer them ovarian transposition. They think it's a more uh, standard procedure. Regarding uh, imaging and labs, well, the patients are evaluated depending on the cancer they have. So, for instance, for rectal cancer, usually we do abdominal and pelvic MRI and chest CT. We have done some PET CT for those patients, uh, but we don't believe it's really necessary. We did it because uh, we were trying to reduce the risk of performing some experimental procedure in a metastatic patient. So that's, that's the reason why we did PET-CT for some cases. Well, the labs also depend on the tumor, most of all. Uh, but we also test the patients for antimalarian hormone to avoid performing a procedure in a woman with very low ovarian reserve. Well, the, the risk of uh, ovarian metastasis in rectal cancer is around uh, 3% of the patients. And a prophylactic of rectomy is considered only for postmenopausal women. We don't do as a regular part of the treatment, unless the patient has a direct invasion of the ovaries. So otherwise, there is no reason to remove the ovaries of the patients with the rectal cancer. Uh, we always send the patients for genetic counseling. Uh, unfortunately, most of them do not have access to genetic testing. In Brazil, you know, just 20 to 25% of the patients have insurance, and uh, the, the tests are not available for the public health system. So, unfortunately, it's not available for all patients. But we always send the patients for counseling, and uh, all patients included in our feasibility trial were tested for Lynch syndrome and none of them have the, the mutation. So those patients were tested. So now could you just tell us about the technique and detail? Uh, were there any concerns for necrosis of the uterus or any type of internal hernias or torsion? Well, first it's important to understand that the procedure is divided in two moments, right? So one, it's a uh, taking the uterus out of the pelvis, uh, then the patient can do radiotherapy, and the second moment when the uterus is uh, placed back uh, in, in its natural position. So for the first surgery, we use the same positioning of the patients and trocars as we use for a regular laparoscopic hysterectomy. So for the first surgery, we use the same patient positioning and trocars placement as for any regular laparoscopic hysterectomy. The surgery itself starts with the sectioning of the round and broad ligaments, uh, and we do it a little bit more lateral than usual uh, because we want to use those ligaments to attach the uterus to the abdominal wall when the uterus is in the upper abdomen. 
then the uterosacral ligaments are cut near the uterus because they will be used on the second suture plane of the vagina. Then we go to the vasculuterine septum dissection, and this dissection is performed in the same manner as for a laparoscopic hysterectomy, but it should allow the vagina to be sutured in two planes. Uh, after that, the uterine vessels are coagulated and sectioned uh, just lateral to the cervix in a similar fashion to an extrafacial hysterectomy. The vagina then is sectioned and sutured in two planes. As this patient will start radiation in 7 to 10 days after surgery, we believe that every effort uh, to avoid vaginal cuff dehiscence is important. We know that radiation impairs healing, so that's, that's the reason. Uh, the infundibular pelvic ligaments are then dissected cranially until their interse intersection with the iliac artery. And at this point, the pelvic portion of the surgery is completed and the uterus with uh, the ovaries and tubes can be mobilized outside the pelvis. So for the next portion of the surgery, an uh, extra 10 millimeter stroker is inserted in the suprapubic area and uh, for the camera. And now the screen is located uh, above the patient's head. And that's the same setup that we use for periaortic lymphadenectomies. Well, on the left side of the patient, the sigmoid in descending column are mobilized by lateral medi to medial dissection up to the level of the gonadal vessels origin. And then those vessels are dissected in block. We don't do like separate dissection for the vessels. We just do it in block to avoid traction or any injury that can cause ischemia to, to the uterus. So, and the same is done on the right side. So the terminal ileum, second and right column are mobilized by lateral medial dissection. And again, the same care is taken with the IP ligament um, to dissect the gonadal vessels up to their origin. Uh, this dissection uh, allows mobilization of the uterus to the upper abdomen. Then the uterus is pushed by the round ligaments. We avoid uh, grasping any other parts. We try to do it all, all mobilization uh, through the round ligaments. So the uterus is pushed to the upper abdomen and the second, the ileum, the omentum, uh, are gently moved beneath the arch formed by the IP ligaments. Um, and at this point, care must be taken to avoid rotation of the uterus and twisting of the IP ligaments, again, because this can cause ischemia to the uterus. So then we use uh, two O polypropylene transparietal stitches to suture the edges of the round ligaments to the abdominal, anterior abdominal wall, very close to the costal margin. So it will keep the uterus uh, in the upper abdomen. Uh, additional transparietal stitches are placed to attach the ovaries to the anterior abdominal wall, and we also use clips to mark their position. So other transparietal sutures are made to secure the IP ligaments to the, to the abdominal wall. We use those stitches to prevent herniation between the abdominal wall and the IP ligaments. That's why we use those stitches. After placing all these stitches, the pineal peritone is then released, and only at this time the transparietal sutures are adjusted to avoid traction of the gonadal vessels. 
the umbilical incision is then expanded to 2 to 3 centimeters and the posterior wall of the cervix sutured uh, onto the lower extremity of the aponeurosis incision and additional 5 to 6 uh, polypropylene stitches are made to attach the edges of the cervix to the aponeurosis. Then the skin of the umbilical incision is sutured to the aponeurosis with absorbable trio sutures. The other incisions can be just sutured according to the surgeon's preferences. And this is the end of the first surgery. The uterine viability is checked daily using direct vision of the cervix in the umbilicus. And Doppler ultrasonography is used uh, to check blood flow in the ovarian vessels on the second postoperative day. And usually patients can be discharged on the third postoperative day and can begin radiation between 7 and 10 days after surgery. After the radiotherapy, the second part of the procedure can be performed at any time. So the preparation and positioning of the patient are the same as for the first surgery. And just performing the pneumoperitoneum in placing the first trocar requires special attention in these patients. In patients where the cervix was attached to the umbilicus, the best option is to release the cervix, which will result in a 10 millimeters incision that will allow the placement of the first trocar. After placing the umbilical trocar, the other trocars can be inserted in the same positions as for the first procedure. After sectioning out the lesions, the uterus uh, with the annexes uh, can be brought to the pelvis. We like to insert a vaginal probe to dissect the vaginal vault, and then the vagina is opened and the cervix is inserted into the vagina. The cervix is then sutured to the vagina with absorbable sutures. And this suture can be performed laparoscopically or vaginally. Uh, we prefer the vaginal route because it allows for improved control and positioning the cervix within the vagina. Uh, finally, the round ligaments are then sutured to their remaining lateral portions, and the broad ligament is reconstructed using polypropylene 2 sutures. And that's, that's the end of the surgery. Let us know what can patients really expect in terms of symptoms during the course of the radiotherapy, uh, particularly discussing the menstrual cycle through the umbilicus. Obviously, that's, that's got to be a unique experience for, for the patient. Um, what about the use of GNRH uh, analogs? And, uh, and is the level of activity limited uh, for, for this patient after the surgery? Yeah, that's, that's what everybody wants to know, right? Uh, and, you know, interesting, all patients who have had their uh, cervix attached to the umbilicus had regular menses, regular menses. Some of them referred even uh, menstrual clamps, uh, despite of having the uterine innervation section during surgery, right? So, but also none of them complained of having menstrual cycles through the umbilicus. And, uh, well, and the greatest complaint of all patients was abdominal wall pain uh, related to the transpyretal sutures. Once you remove them, the pain disappears. We have some cases where we left the cervix inside the abdominal cavity and uh, suppressed menses. But I'm uh, convinced that having two menstrual cycles throughout the umbilicus is better than have three months of on menopause. So I also believe that everybody 
has this kind of reaction because it's something new and expected and even awkward, right? So I understand that and that, that's fine. Yeah, may, maybe in the future we stop placing the cervix in the umbilicus. Regarding the activities of the patients while the uterus in the upper abdomen, we ask them to avoid excessive uh, exercise, but we recommend light exercises like walk or something like that. After replacing the uterus in the pelvis, we ask for 60 days without sexual intercourse. After that, they can do whatever they want. We have an, even a patient that likes to run marathons and, and they, they have normal life. So, so once you did the surgery, you reimplanted the uterus. Tell us about that approach and if there were any issues that you encountered that were unexpected. I noticed that you performed chromotubation on this patient as well. And what was the reason for that? Well, uh, reimplanting the uterus is much easier. Uh, despite of our suturing, it's quite straightforward. The problem is that some patients have adhesions of the gonadal vessels to the colon, and that's the most tricky part of the procedure. And uh, it can, can take some time because you have to be careful not to damage uh, those vessels. So, um, and some patients who have had their cervix left inside the abdominal cavity developed uh, cervical collections and experienced some degree of cervical atrophy. So that's also a little bit different. Um, we like to perform chromotubation to check the patency of the tubes. We want to make sure that uh, they are not obstructed by any reason. Those patients have to be able to get pregnant uh, naturally. So that's, uh, that's the concept of the surgery, and that's why we do chromotubation. What is the recommended surveillance for patients who have undergone a uterine transposition? How do you follow up these patients? Well, for the uterine transposition patients, we usually do the normal follow-up for their cancer. So usually the uh, imaging exams are based on the patient's symptoms, but we uh, also do MRIs or tomography once a year. They also have regular pap smear and gynecological exams as any other patient. But because of the protocol, we are testing their hormonal function and performing transvaginal ultrasound every six months. But that's all. There is, it's pretty much the same as a normal patient, let's say a normal cancer patient. So since your initial publication, have you or others performed a similar procedure? Yes, there are some, uh, there are other colleagues uh, doing it. Uh, one very special case is from Colombia. Uh, Dr. Gene Pareja uh, did it in a nine-year-old uh, patient with a sarcoma. So it's it's the first pediatric case, so that's a very interesting case. Also, my good friend Glauco Baiocchi from Sao Paulo has published his case in a patient with cervical cancer, so also a very interesting case. And Renato Moretti from Sao Paulo did a case with us. And I also know that there are some cases in other parts like Saudi Arabia where they did an open case. So it's interesting because other places are are doing it. And we are doing this feasibility protocol, so we expect to publish the results uh, next year. Is there any possibility of this surgery after radical trachelectomy? I'm sure this question uh, must have come up before. Well, Pedro, this is a very good question. 
and I hope so. Yeah, I believe that it could be used for patients with very small tumors, uh, resected with wide margins, uh, and who have micrometastasis in pelvic lymph nodes. So I, I believe that's, that's the best patient for the procedure. It may be also used for patients with isolated tumor cells uh, in the lymph nodes, but you have to consider that these patients uh, may not even need radiation. So I'm not sure about this specific group of patients. And sometimes uh, practice is driven by patient's preference, so you have to consider. For instance, if a patient with a pelvic positive lymph node post-tracheolectomy decide not to perform radiotherapy because of the infertility, I would suggest her to do the transposition inside the trial, right? I'm not suggesting people just start to do it uh, without considering uh, this is an experimental procedure. Now, I have to ask you one, uh, one additional question. Uh, obviously, there's been many great surgeries that have been named after the surgeon who created that surgery. How does it feel to know that this surgery will carry your name? Yes, I have mixed feelings about it. I mean, uh, I'm very happy. I would be lying if I say, oh, that's, that's pre-standard. I do that all the time. So, yeah, I mean, how great it is to create a new surgery. That's, that's awesome. I'm very happy with it. But, uh, you know, at the same time, uh, I'm still concerned because we have a long way to prove it works. So it's uh, unfinished work. That's, that's it. Rayton, it has been absolutely a pleasure speaking with you. And uh, I was wondering if you would like to make any closing remarks. Well, I think it's a very interesting technique with great potential. But uh, there is a long way until it became non-experimental. And I hope more centers start their own protocols about this technique. And I'm, I'm willing to help them to do it. So... And finally, I would like to thank my team and my hospital for supporting me. Uh, and thank you, Pedro, so much for this opportunity. It's been a pleasure.